Well, good morning, church. Uh, before we dive into Genesis 38, I think there's a couple of things maybe we should talk about in advance, just a couple of like preliminary things to sort of set up our study. The first one is, uh, I know that there can be a tendency to flinch away from a text like this. Or it's a little cringeworthy. There's a lot of stuff that's real ugly in that. And I think because of our uh, cultural sensibilities, maybe what we perceive as propriety or whatever, there can be uh, a tendency with Christians to get to a text like this and then go, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I wish this wasn't in here. Like, too much information. Like, let's move on. It's gross. There's gross terms and stuff that happens, and I'd rather not look at it. I want to say there is great value in all of God's revealed word. There is great value in all of scripture. And in particular, in the text where the Bible speaks to sexuality, even the distortion of the way sexuality is intended to be, we don't do our culture any good by leaning away or flinching or cringing or turning our eyes away. Uh, If we leave a vacuum, our culture will certainly define sexual mores and the status quo in our place. Does that make sense? It is better for us when we come to a complicated text to look at it, to understand if we can, why God included it, and also to understand what it says about sexuality, both in the culture of the time and sexuality in the culture in which we live. If we look at it and we go, "Eh, this is kind of gross, I'd rather not deal with it, and we move on, we miss an opportunity to be ambassadors of Christ in this world with regard to all things, including things of a sexual nature, right? So uh, we try to give you a warning, we try to let you know when, if you got kids or whatever in here, but we, we don't ever want to lean away from a text just because it's difficult or because it's hard. Uh, we, we do ourselves and our world a disservice when we do that. Secondly, in advance, let me tell you why we've taken these texts uh, out of sequence. So if you're following along, if you're not a guest with us today, which by the way, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. But if you've been walking along, you know we taught Genesis 37 and then we taught Genesis 39 last week. Genesis 37 is the place where Joseph has his dreams. It's the beginning of the story of Joseph. He has his dreams. His brothers hate him because of the favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph. They plot to kill him. They change their mind. In fact, Judah is the one who says, why should we kill him when we can make a little money? They instead sell him into slavery. And at the end of 37, Joseph is led off into slavery in Egypt. Then 38 comes, but we taught instead 39 last week, which is the story of where Joseph is tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he resists that in in a way to honor the Lord, is falsely accused and thrown into prison. I want to explain to you why we dodged uh, or or sort of changed the sequence of these. The, the, The main thing that you need to understand is that last week was Mother's Day. And so on Mother's Day, we kind of looked at it and thought, man, we're going to have lots of families and lots of moms in here. And we're not really sure that, that we, we want to do 38 on mother's day. And so we did 39 instead. It's interesting because 38 sequentially is not necessarily a part of the Joseph story, right? So it's kind of injected. And in fact, sometimes can feel jarring because you're hearing about Joseph being led off into slavery. And then all of a sudden this awful story about Judah shows up. Let me explain to you, though, that while we change the sequencing, it doesn't change the emphasis of what the author's intending to do. So the reason that the story of Judah shows up here in 38 between the selling of Joseph into slavery and Joseph's faithfulness when it comes to temptation with Potiphar's wife is to serve as a contrast in some sense. What we see in Joseph's life is that while he is tempted, he recognizes that he has an accountability before God and he is faithful and does not succumb to that temptation. He doesn't serve his own selfishness. When we look at 38 with Judah, and by the way, Judah is an important character in the biblical narrative, right? In fact, for what it's worth, in case you don't know, the Lord Jesus himself is referred to as the Lion of Judah. 
Judah is the fourth of Jacob's sons, but he will be the leader of his brothers. He will be the leader of, of uh, all, all of these young men. And as they get older, he is the one through which the line of Jesus comes. So we will see in the course of our study that Judah's descendants end up being uh, the great-great-grandfather of King David. And then in turn, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Lord Jesus himself. Judah's story is important. Now we hear this narrative of Joseph, and he was Jacob's favorite. But the, but the, uh, the covenant of God did not pass uniquely through through. Joseph, it passes through Judah on to David and on to Jesus. So the story is important both as a contrast, but also it's important to understand that Judah's story over time changes. The character of Judah changes, and we'll see that in our ongoing study, but it's harder to see when you're just looking at Genesis 38. When you're just looking at Genesis 38, it would be easy to lump Judah in with Simeon and Levi who've been disqualified and Reuben who's been disqualified. You, you might be tempted to disqualify Judah as well. And I think in the course of our study, you'll understand uh, why that doesn't occur because there's transformation that is described in 38. The last thing I want to say as a foreword before we dive into the text is this. In order to understand what's happening in the text, you have to understand the ancient Near Eastern custom of leveret marriage. That might not be something that's familiar to you, but without understanding leveret marriage, this chapter and its complexity don't make any sense. The custom of leveret marriage that uh, was both a cultural norm at the time in which the story took place and then was later included in Levitical law, you can read about that in Deuteronomy 25, was put in place to ensure the continuance of a family name. Remember, it's a different culture than the culture in which we live. And what was valuable in that time and what brought about status was having an heir. Someone you could pass on your stuff to and your family line and and that that would continue. And so the, the leveret marriage custom, basically, and it wasn't just a Jewish thing, it was all of these ancient Near Eastern groups, they had this custom that said, if a woman was married to a man and he died, which we see in this text, Ur, one of Judah's sons, dies, then his brother, in this particular case that would be Onan, would marry that widow and create an offspring, right? Would impregnate her and create an offspring that then would be named after the dead husband. Does that make sense? So if this had gone the way it was prescribed in Leveret law, what would have happened is Onan, after Ur's death, Onan would have impregnated Tamar as her husband. They would have had a child and they would have named that child Ur. And Ur would essentially have the status and the privilege of the firstborn, right? So Onan wouldn't have that anymore. It would go to the son. They would basically treat that Ur like the son of Ur who had died, right? And if that next brother died, as it happens with Onan, then Shelah would be the one who would take up that, and it was a way to continue the line. It had to do with their priorities and their times. Now, I want to be really clear here. We don't endorse in this church leveret marriage. We don't believe that the Bible endorses leveret marriage for followers of Christ living in 2022. This is a a story that happened in a particular time, in a particular place. The story was revealed in a particular custom. That would have made all kinds of sense to them. But for us, we look at the story and the whole thing feels cringy, right? Because it isn't our custom, because we weren't born during that time period, because we would actually look at this and say, we don't think this is a great system to maintain a family line, right? But at the time in which the story occurred and the time in which the scripture was given, it was given in a time when leveret marriage was a common custom. The point of Genesis 38 is not to endorse leveret marriage, or to refute leveret marriage. That's not the point of the story at all. And for us, because we're not from this culture, if we get hung up on the values, 
or the lack of values involved in leveret marriage, we will miss the point of what's going on in the text. Does that make sense? Don't let yourself get hung up on there. Look at it and go, yeah, we, we don't endorse this. We wouldn't encourage it. And neither does God. But at the time it was the norm, right? With all of that said, we can then look at some of the tragedy here in Genesis 38. It begins uh, after Judah with his brothers had gone to Jacob in 37 and told Jacob, hey, your son Joseph is dead. We found his coat. It's got blood all over it. Is this his coat? And Jacob said, yeah, that's my son's coat. And they said, yeah, I'm really sorry. They lied to Jacob. And then immediately following that, we get to 38. It tells us that Judah, the fourth son, left the compound with his family and his brothers and he, and he moved away from them. It says in verse 1, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. It does not ever tell us Judah's wife's name. That's also uh, unfortunate, but it's a cultural thing. It tells us Judah's wife's father's name. His name was Shua. Judah met a Canaanite woman. He married her. He took her and went into her. Verse 3, she conceived and bore a son. He called the first son's name Ur. She conceived again. He bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, also a Canaanite woman for what it's worth. And then in verse 7, it says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. We don't get any more explanation than that. I don't know about you. I look at the text and I'm like, what? He was like, what was the deal with Ur? What are the details there? The scripture doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that God, in his sovereign wisdom, made a choice to put Ur to death. We don't understand the why. We don't understand the reasoning. What we know is that Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur was married to a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And God put Ur to death because of his wickedness. That's all we get. So the story continues here, right? It says then in verse eight, Judah said to Onan, as was the custom, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of her brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. Again, understand the purpose of leveret marriage was to raise up an offspring for Ur, right? That Ur, even though he was dead, would have a descendant. So he tells Onan, go in and perform your duty as a brother-in-law. But verse nine, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Well, why does Onan, of course, why does Onan care? Well, there was a greater percentage of the birthright, right? There was a greater percentage of the wealth. There was a greater percentage of all of the the stuff that they had amassed that would go to Onan if Ur didn't have a descendant. And so there there is a motivation for Onan not to impregnate Tamar because he wants more of the power and the wealth for himself. Onan knew uh, that the offspring would not be his, verse 9. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And let's be really clear for a second. It's a, again, it's, it's an uncomfortable part of the story. But what's happening here is not that God put him to death for spilling his semen on the ground. There are people who've used this text as a way to, uh, to preclude birth control. God doesn't punish Onan for birth control. What he punishes Onan for in this case is selfishness. Onan has no problem having sex with Tamar. He has no problem doing the deed with her. He just doesn't want to pay the consequence of that, right? He, he wants to put forth the, the look of compliance with Leverett Law without actually making any of the sacrifice to himself personally. That is what God punishes him for. The wickedness and the selfishness of it, right? And again, it's difficult for us to understand, but the Bible makes it very plain. So, 
So again, here, second of, of uh, Judah's sons is put to death by God. We get a little more information about why he's put to death. But now, now we know as readers that God has put the first two of Judah's sons to death. Look at what happens next. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till, till Shelah, my son, grows up. Apparently, Shelah was too young to, to be married to, to, to Tamar. So he says, go to your father's house and remain a widow till Shelah, my son, grows up. But look at what it says next. For he feared that he would die. That's Shelah. He feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah says one thing to Tamar. He says to her, hey, Shayla's too young. He can't uh, give you an heir at this point. He can't be your husband. So just go back to your father's house as a widow and wait there until Shayla's old enough. He essentially betrothes Tamar to Shayla, but says she's too young. Now that's what he says with his words. But what the Bible reveals to us is that it didn't have anything to do with Shayla's age in Judah's mind. What it had to do with in Judah's mind, Judah's mind is that he thought Tamar was cursed. He thought to himself, I've had two different sons married to this woman. They both died. We know that God killed them, but Judah didn't know that. So Judah says one thing, but his motivation is different. Don't miss the hypocrisy in that. And in this particular culture, when Judah sends Tamar to go and live with her father as a widow, he essentially relegates her to non-entity status with no hope of love with no hope of inheritance, with no hope of social status, honestly, with no hope of an heir. Because Judah has no intention whatsoever to, to marry her to Shayla. He's never going to do that. So essentially, he puts her away and locks her in kind of limbo, locks her in stasis. She becomes a non-person, a non-entity, because of his fear that Shayla would die. He puts her away and leaves her hopeless. She's left with no hope, no love, no status, no heir. In that culture, she essentially becomes a non-person. And so we see then in 12, a turning point. We see a turning point in 12. The turning point in 12 is where Tamar decides to take action. She's been relegated to this non-entity status. Judah has said one thing to her, but he's done another. And so she decides to do something about that. Look at verse 12. It says, in the course of time, the unnamed wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Let me just be uh, transparent here for a second about the way I was taught this text and then to point out the fact that what I was taught about this text is actually not in the text. So as a young person, and even as a Bible college student, when I was taught this text, it was always taught to me that Tamar came up with a crafty scheme. And she decided to dress up like a prostitute and to seduce Judah in order to get what she wanted, right? That she manipulated the situation. I want to invite you to go back and look at the text again and recognize that it says nothing about Judah's in, uh, seduction by Tamar. It says nothing in the text about Tamar's motivation to dress up like a prostitute. It does say that she wrapped herself in a veil. Now, interestingly, Israelite women do not wear veils, right? That's not their custom. There are only two circumstances in which women typically wore veils. One of them was in the midst of cult prostitution. The other one was for a betrothed woman. And I'll give you a good example of that. If you remember when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac, and he found Rebekah, and he brought her back, and she sees across the field the one who would be your husband, she says, who's that? And the servant says, well, that's going to be your husband. That's Isaac. What does she do? She veils herself. 
for a betrothed woman to wear a veil made all kinds of sense. What it tells us in the text is that Tamar had been relegated to non-entity status, no hope, no love, no heir. She'd been told one thing and had another done. She'd been stuck, basically, by Judah. She hears that he's coming to town, that his wife has passed away. He's coming for the celebration of the shearing of the sheep. And it says she wraps herself in a veil and she sits at, at the entrance to the town. And when he sees her, he thinks she's a prostitute. But it's entirely possible, and again, this could just be conjecture here. It's entirely possible because the the text doesn't tell us her motivation. It's entirely possible that she went, wrapped as a betrothed woman to say, hey, Shayla, as it tells us in the text, is of marrying age. You told me when he was old enough I could marry him. He is, so what's the holdup? It feels like you have no intention to, to keep that commitment. She goes veiled, and he sees her. Back to the text. Let's look at it together. When Judah saw her, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. It does not say in the text that she told him she was. It doesn't say that she pretended to be that. It doesn't say that her desire was to seduce him. Now, is it possible that all those things happen? Yeah, they're just not in the text. So for us, in our modern sensibility, to look at a person who'd been relegated to non-entity status and then ascribe to her also the status of a seductress, when the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, says to me that I think that seems a little unfair, right? She goes and she sits at the town gate. He sees her and he thinks she's a prostitute for she'd covered her face. Verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What we can say for a fact is that he saw someone that he thought was a prostitute and asked her how much it would cost to have sex with her. That's what we can be sure of, right? He saw someone he thought was a prostitute, whether that was her intention or not. And he asked her how much. Now, to be honest and fair... At that point, there could have been a whole different story if Tamar had said, I beg your pardon. I'm not a prostitute. I'm wearing this because I'm betrothed to Shayla. You told me I could marry him. He's old enough. Let's go. She could have objected, and she doesn't. So for those who want to make an argument that, that she was wicked in this text, you're right. She also was unrighteous. She also made a mistake. All I'm saying is I'm not sure that was her intention at the outset. He looks at her, and he sees that she, he thinks she's a prostitute. He says, how much? And she says, well, what will you pay? Let's read it together. He turned to her at the roadside and said, verse 16, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. By the way, a signet and a cord was a, a sign of authority. It was basically a wax seal they would wear around their neck. It's not a ring. It's a wax seal they would wear around their neck that, that they would use to authenticate their idea. It would be like a social security card or a driver's license. And even the staff would have been carved uniquely to identify it as something that belonged to Judah. So both of these things are unique to Judah and can only be connected to him. She says, well, the goat sounds fine, but what guarantee will you give me that I'm going to get the goat? Because you don't have a goat with you. Why don't you give me your ID? And he agrees. He trades something of value for something of relatively no value. He says, okay. He gave them to her, into verse 18, and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. They have sex. She gets pregnant. And she goes back to her father-in-law's house, relegated to non-entity status, right? Now, what it'll tell us in the next section, and we don't have to read it verse by verse to get the summary of this, but basically, uh, Judah sends his friend to go and, and make payment to get his ID back. He sends the goat. The guy goes down to the same place and says, hey, I'm looking for that prostitute. And the people of the town go, we don't have prostitutes here. 
There's no cult prostitutes here. There's never been any cult prostitutes here. That's one more reason why I don't believe it was just a common thing to have prostitutes at the city in this particular place, right? So Judah says, well, I sent the goat. She's not there. I don't know how I'm going to get my ID back, but let's just forget the whole thing so that we're not made a laughing stock. And that's kind of the way the story ends for a little while, at least for three months. Then look at verse 24. About three months later, Tamar, who, remember, was supposed to be relegated to non-entity status. She's supposed to be uh, stuck in her widowhood. She starts to show because she's pregnant with Judah's child. And word gets back to Judah. It says about three months later, verse 24, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Uh, That one wrecks me, guys. Like, I just, I hate that verse so much. Because here is a guy who has lied to his father, who has sold off his brother, who's married a pagan, who has wicked sons that are so wicked, God kills two of them. Here's a guy who's looking for a prostitute, finds one, admittedly doesn't know that she's his daughter-in-law, but he's either committing adultery or idolatry or maybe both. And he's going to hear about her pregnancy and go, yeah, get her out here and let's kill her. Let's burn her and her unborn child. I am so disturbed by this hypocrisy, by the response of it. And yet for us, as we look at it, it it is so common, right? It's so common for us to be so fixated on the the brokenness of others and to be ignorant or, or in denial of the brokenness of we ourselves. He says, bring her out and let's burn her, right? So there's one of those sort of courtroom drama moments where Tamar says, if it pleases the court, I would like to enter a couple more pieces of evidence, right? It says in verse 26, excuse me, 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are and the signet and the cord and the staff. You recognize these IDs? I've got somebody's ID. It's the father of my child. Now, there are a couple of different ways this could go. But here's what happens, 26. Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. That means he didn't sleep with her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. One of them was named Zerah, and one of them was named Perez. Perez, Perez I've already mentioned to you. Uh, you can read about Perez in Ruth, chapter 4, in the lineage of Boaz and of Jesse and of David. You can also read about Perez in Matthew 1 or Luke 3 in the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to take the time to do that today, but just know that Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah, is a great, 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 great grandfather, both of David and of Jesus himself. When we look at this text, I hope that there are some things churning in you as you look at it. And I just want to hit a couple of points of application before we're done. The first one, if you've been around here for any period of time, this will feel like redundancy because I think I say it almost every week. But God works through broken people to accomplish his purposes. Our God is a redeemer. He is a reconciler. He is a restorer, right? And our God works through broken people. What's more, God, with the exception of Jesus, only has the option of working with broken people, right? And you might look at that and you might go, well, it's kind of a bummer that the people in these stories aren't more heroic or they're not more faithful, they're not more righteous. No, 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 don't read it the wrong way. The news that God works through broken people is great news for you and me. And you want to know why? Because all of us are busted too. There isn't a single solitary person in the room who isn't broken, who doesn't do stupid knuckleheaded stuff sometimes that you wish you could undo or doesn't do wicked things that you don't even know. 
that you don't even think about it because you're so callous to it. Every coach, every teacher, every pastor, every politician you've ever admired, they're all broken. And yet the good news is that God uses broken people because broken people is all there is. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? I like, I like the fact that Judah looks at Tamar and says she is more righteous than me. But don't misunderstand. He doesn't say that she's righteous. He's contrasting. He, he's not saying she's perfect. He's not saying she's got it all together. We can look at the text and point out things she did wrong too. Everybody in the story is broken. Everybody in the room is broken. The great news for us this morning, one of the things I want you to walk away understanding is yes, we're all broken, but our God is redeemer. He uses this ugly story to create the line from which Jesus will come and redeem us from all the ugliness. God uses us even in our brokenness. I love the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul talks about jars of clay, verse 7. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That, that treasure is the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Not beautiful, not necessarily that valuable. You and me, we're jars of clay, right? We're just a container for the beauty of who God is. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The fact that we're jars of clay, the fact that we're broken, the fact that God redeems us still and uses us is a beautiful way to put the resurrection life of Jesus on display. And he does it through us in our bustedness. So, so that's the first thing I want you to see. You look at the story in 38, Judah, Tamar, Onan, all, all these people, they're, they're a mess. They're just like us. Praise God that he works still. The second point of application I want you to see in the text has to do with the response of Judah to the new evidence that's ad- admitted into the court, Right? The response of Judah, and I mentioned this before, but, but Judah is a guy that prior to this, we could look at and see all kinds of things. He's a guy who sells his brother, he lies to his dad, he leaves his family, he marries a pagan, he has wicked sons that God actually kills 66% of. He abandons his daughter-in-law while still controlling her. He lies to her, he manipulates her, he relegates her to non-entity status, he pays for sex with a veiled woman, and that's either idolatry or adultery or both. He abandons things of value for things of no value. He shows no shame at condemning Tamar without ever even having a conversation with her. And that's no different than the world in which we live today. How quick are we to shame and blame and persecute people on an accusation without ever having a conversation with somebody to get the real details? Don't you wish that Judah had called Tamar up and said, hey, what happened? How are you pregnant? And they could have had a conversation about the fact that even if things hadn't gone the way they had, Judah's a part of that because he relegated her to non-entity status. There's all kinds of things that Judah can be ashamed of. And when she pulls out his cord and signet and staff, I love the fact that he doesn't do this. I love the fact that he doesn't go, no, 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 don't make this about me. This is about you. I don't need to see a signet ring. I don't need to see a staff. What I can see is your pregnant belly. And that tells me you've been immoral. It tells me you've been an adulteress. Bring on the torches. He doesn't try and deflect his own guilt in it. What he's able to do when she brings out that evidence is to allow the shame of his own guilt to help him recognize that in that particular situation, 
she is more righteous. Not righteous full stop, but more righteous than him. Why? Because in, 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 in righteousness, you guys, righteousness isn't just about compliance with rules. It's not just about moral adherence to the law. Righteousness, as we understand it in the Old Testament, is about working to preserve and protect and encourage shalom. Or wholeness, wellness among the community. Of all the characters in Genesis 38, no one is working to restore wholeness and wellness and shalom in the community more than Tamar. In fact, what she accomplishes is to create an heir for Ur from Judah. Now, the way she got there isn't great. And we certainly wouldn't say that the ends justify the means, but she was pursuing wholeness and wellness. It's why he can look at her and say, she is more righteous. Here's the point of application. In our lives, it will always be easier to find somebody else's problems to distract us from our own. It will always be, I mean, if you want to be the kind of person that's going to preoccupy yourself with the brokenness of your neighbors and coworkers and friends and the people on TV and the people on the news, listen, you'll have no end to that pursuit. You can spend all day just criticizing drivers around you on the freeway. You can spend your whole life pointing out the brokenness of other people. And I just want to say, what, what's the good of that? What does that do for you? And what does it do for anybody else? Or instead you can, you can look at what Judah does here. And what he does is rather than deflecting back onto Tamar, who had problems of her own, He says, I have not been righteous enough. I have not been pursuing wholeness and wellness and shalom. She did it better than me. Right? He owns his own stuff. And I think there's a great teachable moment for all of us because we can be preoccupied with the brokenness of everybody else in the world or we could use these moments. God uses Tamar in this story to wake Judah up to what is righteous. There's hypocrisy. Jesus talks about hypocrisy when he's talking to the, to the Pharisees. He t- tells them they're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside but inside are, are corrupt in Matthew 23. In Luke 12, he warns the people about hypocrisy with the Pharisees. And it's so easy to be pointing out other people's problems and not honest about our own. But, but what Judah does here is he humbles himself. Reminds me of what it says in Isaiah 66.1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, God says. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's not be confused about the fact that God isn't looking for the best brokenness hunters, right? He's not looking for us to be the best at pointing out other people's foibles and failures. He's looking for us to be the kind of people who recognize the brokenness in our world and allow that to be a catalyst for transformation in our own lives. I will tell you that by the time we get to Genesis 44, we're going to see Judah again. And when we see Judah again, he's not the selfish monster that he is in 37 and 38. By the time we get to Genesis 44, Judah is the one who would rather sacrifice his own life than see his father Jacob or his brother Benjamin hurt. How do you suppose he became the guy he was in Genesis 44? It was by being confronted by his own wickedness in 38 and not ignoring it but allowing it to be a catalyst for transformation in his life, humbling himself. Judah becomes a different, sacrificial, empathetic leader later. God uses that humiliation to shape him. I think when I look at the text, you're right, there's all kinds of mess. But God overcame this in Christ. He overcame the accusations and the obstacles to accomplish righteousness for us. And then he appoints us as his ambassadors 
to carry that same righteousness into the world where people can see it. That 2 Corinthians 4 thing about being jars of clay that carry around the righteousness of God. It's important. We have the opportunity to pursue wellness and wholeness, even though we're busted, even though we're broken, even though sometimes we're going to do something stupid and knuckleheady, and so are all the people around us. Allow it to be a catalyst for transformation in our lives that we aren't the same people in Genesis 44 that we were in 38. Does that make sense? We want to be different people by the time we get to Genesis 44. And the only way that happens is if we're people with a humble and contrite spirit. I'll finish with this in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, uh, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I read that, I love it. And I kind of wonder if there are Pharisees in the crowd who'd be like, he just said he doesn't want to have dinner with us, right? But that isn't what he said. What Jesus said is, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to heal the sick. I came to spend time with the broken. And what he's pointing to that sometimes I think Pharisee, the Pharisee and all of us can sometimes miss, is that when he says, I didn't come for the righteous, he's pointing to the fact that if he had come to have dinner with the righteous, he would have had dinner alone. He came to call sinners to repentance. And what that means is his table will always be full because what he was doing when he said it was inviting the Pharisees to pull up a chair. There's room at the table for the broken and that's all of us. So let's learn and humble ourselves and be different people in 44 than we were in 38. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you even for the difficult texts. And, and we look at this and there are things, there are questions we have. We don't understand why you do some of the things you do the way you do them. We, there are places where we wish you might handle it the way we think you should or the way we would if we were you. Help us to turn loose of that. Instead, to look at your word and understand the way in which it reflects your character and our character, the way in which it reflects your expectation for us, and the way in which all of the scripture calls us to be pursuing righteousness. And by that, I don't mean adherence to some moral code because we can't do it, but rather to be pursuing wholeness and wellness and shalom with you and with one another. That you would be honored in and through us and by us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.